Thank you, Andrew, for sharing. Thank you, Tony, for being in this journey with us. Uh, literally since day one, I remember when we were just being stirred by God in, in starting a new church in, in Whitehorse and what that would look like, and that started in our living room. And, and Tony and his wife, Janet, um, have always been there and still, I trust, will continue to be, and we will call each other friends. And so this isn't a goodbye. It's just we have a new chapter, and we can trust God who's gone before us. So there's joy in that. And what I want to speak to my own heart about and to those of us listening is unity in the church. And we find this in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 to 16. Paul's writing this letter while he's in jail. He's in jail for sharing the gospel, and he's in prison to some of the most elite guards in Rome. He's chained to them, yet he wants the church to be united. He wants the church to grow in maturity. He loves the church. He loves the gospel. He loves our Savior. And we see this in this letter. I think it's very timely for us that we'd be talking about unity. Um, when we look at the world around us, it's very fractioned and divided. And it's not unknown within the church as well. And so here we are in chapter 4. Paul has set up in the first three chapters these doctrinal and theological truths, which mean these essential Christian teachings. For the first three chapters of this six-chapter book, Paul lays that foundation. These doctrinal and theological truths we can call the indicatives. These indicatives are the answer as to why we should do something. Why should I do this? The indicative says, God has done this for you. God has reconciled you, has brought you together as one people. There's no longer Jew and Gentile, Gentile being a non-Jew. You are one. The wall of hostility that separated you has been paid for by Jesus Christ. He is uniting you. He is the Prince of Peace. And so God has united us. And the first three chapters describe what he's done for us. And now we get to this transition chapter in chapter 4. If the first three chapters are the indicative, why we should do this, the next three chapters in 4, 5, and 6, we can call the imperative the things we must do, and the things we should not do. This is the application to our lives that is built on the doctrine that it was laid in the first three chapters. Imperatives say we must do this and we must not do that. A way to think of it is I am humble because Christ has shown humility towards us and he himself is humble. So we're not humble for the sake of being humble. We are humble because of our calling. Our conduct, our conduct always is followed by our calling. Our conduct is followed by our calling. So the indicative, the why, fuels the imperative. What we should do, what we shouldn't do. But the imperative does not earn the indicative. Meaning, if we just do good things, it doesn't make us in right standing with God. God says, I choose you. 
I have chosen you. I have adopted you. You are my son. You are my daughter. And because you are my son, because you are my daughter, you are to live this way. You can't earn that adoption. You can't say, oh, I'm going to be really humble, really gentle, and then God will love me. No. Our conduct is followed by our calling. If we were to live like that, just to be kind, to be gentle, to be forgiving, it's just empty moralism. There's no foundation in anything. The Bible never says, just be kind for the sake of being kind, or be good for the sake of being good. There's always a reason, and it's always rooted in the character and nature of God and what he's done for us. We must not seek unity for the sake of unity either. There's a lot of talk of unity, and it's, it's, a, really, it's a really good word. But if we're just united for the sake of being united, there's a lot of compromising. And that's not what the Bible lays out for us as what unity should look like. The Christian church must be united, and Paul will lay out what unity looks like. Because unity for the Christians, it actually impacts the message that we proclaim to the world. Our unity or non-unity is a testimony to the world. For instance, in John chapter 17, verses 22 to 23, it says this, I have given them the glory you gave me, so they may be one as we are one. I am in them and you are in me. May they experience such perfect unity that the world will know that you sent me and that you love them as much as you love me. Why are we to be united? Because God, Son, Holy Spirit are united. We are united because God is united. And if we are not, it compromises our message. Unity is not optional for the Christian. It's at the very heart of our faith. And Paul in Ephesians 4 will spell out what true unity looks like. So read with me or listen carefully. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, I, a prisoner for serving the Lord, beg you to lead a life worthy of your calling. For you have been called by God. Always be humble and gentle. Be patient with each other. Making allowance for each other's faults because of your love. Make every effort to keep yourselves united in the Spirit. Binding yourselves together with peace. Paul is saying we must live a life worthy of our calling. A life worthy of this calling of God is marked by humility, gentleness, patience, giving others the benefit of the doubt, unity, and peace. These markers are essential for maintaining unity in the church. And when we hear these things, we have to ask ourselves, are we humble? Are we gentle? Are we patient? Do we give people the benefit of the doubt? Do we seek peace and do we love? We need to be humble because pride, my pride, your pride, always wants to get its own way. We need to be gentle because anger offends and harms people. 
We need to be patient with one another because we cannot control the actions of others and we cannot control the actions of God. We need to give people the benefit of the doubt because we all have weaknesses. We need to seek peace because unity cannot exist without God's people being united by a peace that surpasses all understanding. When the world is divided and not united, there is a peace that comes from God that transcends all understanding. Basically, it doesn't make sense why these people could be in the same room, in peace, united. And we need to love because it motivates and informs our humility and our gentleness and our patience and our giving others the benefit of the doubt and our peacefulness and our unity. But why should we be all these things? Why should we be humble? Why should we be gentle or patient or give others the benefit of the doubt or peaceful or united? Paul goes on to explain in verse 4. For there is one body and one spirit, just as you have been called, called to one glorious hope for the future. There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all, in all, and living through all. Here in verses 4 to 6, Paul lays out seven ones. One body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and one God. There is one God. This unity exists within God. And it echoes what we've heard in the Old Testament. In a book called Deuteronomy, chapter 6, verse 4, there was this mantra, This would, they would say. There, there was this belief and this declaration, they would say. They would say, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God the Lord is one. The Lord our God is one. That's why we are to be united, because God is united and one. So even though there's seven ones that Paul says, one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, I'd like to focus on one particular one. Yes, there is one body. Churches all around the world, by faith, are one body in Christ. This is the universal church. There's one spirit that God sends into each of us by faith, and it transforms our lives to be more like Jesus. And we have one hope in God. We don't have many hopes, but one hope that God will save. And there's one Lord. And yes, there's one baptism. And it's not... He's not getting into a debate on how to baptize. I mean, scholars aren't sure if it's talking about baptism into the faith, the moment you believe, or water baptism. But either way, there is, there is one united baptism. Essentially, the baptism that we celebrate now replaces the covenant mark, which was circumcision in the Old Testament. This was a, a public declaration that you were part of this family of God. That's what baptism is. Maybe you're listening, you haven't been baptized and you've placed your faith in Jesus. We'd love to hear about your journey. And perhaps in your journey, you would be baptized. And there's one God. But I'd like to focus on one particular thing. The one faith. 
And the one faith that Paul is referring to is that we are to believe a certain content. There's an objective content that is the one faith. It's a faith that is passed down through generations. It is the faith of the apostles, the faith of the founding fathers of the church. This one faith unites us. For instance, in 1 Timothy, another book in the New Testament, 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 6, it says, If you explain these things to the brothers and sisters, Timothy, you will be a worthy servant of Christ Jesus, one who is nourished by the message of faith and the good teaching you have followed. So in 1 Timothy, it's saying there's a message of faith. It's not this, this feeling. It's not this metaphysical, cerebral feeling. It is a message. The one faith is a message to be believed. The one faith is about true doctrine and sound theology. And so when people hear those words within the church, sometimes you hear doctrine and you hear theology and we get our quills up and it can be very divisive. But the thing is, doctrine and theology, that's not what divides people. People divide people. If we are believing true things about God, it should unite us. But it's people, fallen people, who want to use doctrine and theology like a hammer and bring these divisions. People divide the church. Good theology and good doctrine should bring us to unity and to maturity. Because the truths about Jesus are essential for all believers to affirm. This is the one faith. Biblical unity is founded on the claims of Jesus himself. And this is what the apostles taught about him. This one faith. And so we as Christians, we must not sacrifice the truths of this one faith just to gain unity. We must not compromise on good and sound doctrine that we find in the Bible, the apostles' teaching. We're to be firmly grounded in biblical teaching so we can grow into mature followers of Christ and we can grow in unity as the church. And as the church grows in maturity, it does so by each of us, each of us who profess faith in Christ, by us exercising the gifts that God has given us for the building up of the church. And our gifts come directly from Jesus Christ. And this is what Paul says, starting in verse 7 of Ephesians chapter 4. However, he has given each of us a special gift through the generosity of Christ. That is why the scriptures say, when he ascended to the heights, he led a crowd of captives and gave gifts to his people. Notice that it says, he ascended. This clearly means that Christ also descended to our lowly world. And the same one who descended is the one who ascended higher than all the heavens so that he might fill the entire universe with himself. Here in verse 7, Paul is transitioning from this idea of unity to diversity. To be united does not mean that we are all the same. A quick glance around would 
make us realize not only do we look different, but we act quite different. And we are different people. And God has designed that for good. That there is unity in this diversity. And in this diversity, each person, each person in the church globally and at the Northern Collective, they have unique gifts from Christ himself for the building up of his church. And Paul here focuses on Christ giving believers gifts for the greater good of the church. We can also find this idea of gifts in other places in the Bible. For example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, 28 to 30, it says this. Here are some of the parts God has pointed for the church. And Paul's about to list some gifts. First, are apostles, second are prophets, third are teachers, then there are those who do miracles, those who have the gift of healing, those who can help others, those who have the gift of leadership, those who speak in unknown languages. Verse 29, are we all apostles? Are we all prophets? Are we all teachers? Do we all have the same power to do miracles? Do we all have the gift of healing? Do we all have the ability to speak in unknown languages? Do we all have the ability to interpret Unknown languages? Of course not. Paul is saying each of us is gifted differently. Another verse in the New Testament, 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 10 to 11. God has given each of you a gift from his great variety of spiritual gifts. Use them well to serve one another. Do you have the gift of speaking then speak as though God himself were speaking through you. Do you have the gift of helping others? Do it with all your strength and energy that God supplies. Then everything you do will bring glory to God through Christ Jesus. All glory and power to him forever and ever. Amen. If we, look at different, if we are to look at different passages throughout the New Testament about gifts, we can find about 20 in the New Testament. We're not going to go over each of those gifts. But we must understand that the ultimate goal of Jesus Christ giving you and I gifts, the gift of leadership or helping or encouraging, these gifts are for the building up of the body, for the church to become spiritually mature. The gifts are for the building up of the church. And we do not choose our gifts. God has graciously and sovereignly given each of us a gift. And some might be more gifted than others, but all gifts are a gift. And when we realize that all of our gifts are a gift, there's no room for pride or arrogance. But we must be humble. We must serve God humbly because these gifts were a gift to us in the measure that God sees fit. And so when we acknowledge that, we don't have to boast because, oh, I'm such a great teacher or this person is such a great evangelist or this person is such a great helper. We are all doing this for the building up of the church. We need to all be functioning in a healthy way. We never say in the body, this elbow is way better than my forehead. Well, you kind of need both, and you actually need both operating well. So it might be good to consider where do we fit in the body 
What kind of gifts have we been given and how can I learn my gifts and grow in them for the building up of the church? Here's another list. And we find when Paul continues in verse 11 in Ephesians chapter 4. Now these are the gifts Christ gave to the church. The apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers. Their responsibility is to equip God's people to do his work and build up the church, the body of Christ. This will continue until we all come to such unity in our faith and knowledge of God's Son that we will be mature in the Lord, measuring up to the full and complete standard of Christ. So here we can see God's vision for the church is for the leaders to equip the church to carry out the work of ministry effectively. God's vision for the church he is, is he appoints leaders. And these leaders equip the church to carry out the work of ministry effectively here in Whitehorse and globally. The gifts that these leaders have, their responsibility is to equip others, to equip the saints, to equip the believers to do the work of service. And Paul mentions some specific roles which we're not going to get completely into each of them, which are the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and the pastors, and the teachers. What I'll basically say about each of these roles is their primary mission is to teach and proclaim and help people to apply the word of God. They are to teach, proclaim, and help people to apply the word of God. Their primary ministry is speaking or teaching the word of God, which is vital for the unity and maturity of God's people. We must hear the word of God taught properly and well, which brings unity and maturity. The goal of these leaders is not to simply do all the work and everybody watches. Rather, their job is to equip all believers to somehow participate in this ministry. Because there's often this feeling, maybe it's in North America, maybe it's around the world, that the professionals do everything. And the professionals should do all the work and the rest of the church watches and serves the professionals. No, God says, all Christians do the work of ministry and not just the leaders. The leaders help equip all Christians for the building up of Christ. And then what? And then what happens? Paul continues in verse 14. Then we will no longer be immature like children. We won't be tossed and blown about by every wind of new teaching we will not be influenced when people try to trick us with lies so clever they sound like the truth. Instead, we will speak the truth in love, growing in every way more and more like Christ, who is the head of the body, the church. He makes the whole body fit together perfectly as each part does its own special work. It helps the other parts grow 
so that the whole body is healthy and growing and full of love. Isn't that a beautiful picture? The picture of the healthy body with everything working on all cylinders. The heart is pumping well. The blood is clean. The lungs are strong. The stomach is well. This is the picture that each of us has a role in this body. And what is the standard? What is the standard of this maturity? What is the standard of each of us in this body? Jesus Christ is the standard. Jesus Christ, his life, and how he's been humble and gentle is the maturity in which the church must aspire to. Because when we hear this message of the good news of Jesus, that he came to reconcile people to himself who have rebelled, and he paid the ultimate cost to die for you and I, to pay for our sins that disunites us from the God that created us and he unites us. He is the one in whom we follow, love, aspire to be like. Because not only does the gospel save us, the gospel renews us day and day out to be more like Jesus. In Romans chapter 8, verse 29, it said, For God knew his people in advance, and he chose them, to become like his son so that his son would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. Another place where we are to be like Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. So all of us who have had the veil removed can see and reflect the glory of our Lord. And the Lord who is the Spirit makes us more and more like him as we are changed into his glorious image. The goal for each of us is Christ-likeness. What marriages need more than ever is for us to be more like Christ. What the Yukon needs for each of us to be is more like Jesus Christ. What parents and children need of us is to be more like Christ. What a better citizen needs to be is to be more like Jesus Christ. The goal is Christ-likeness. Why? because of what he's done for us in the gospel. The indicative, informing the imperative, what has God done for us? Everything. He has saved us, he has redeemed us, he has adopted us, he calls us his children. We are to be united in the church because he is one. Unity is not an option. For believers, it is essential to the very message of the gospel that we declare. It's because through Jesus, God has provided a way for us to be reconciled to God. When we do not display this, there is this compromising. But when we are united, when we're working together, having been united by the gospel having learned from the one faith, learning of our gifts, we are united and we can push back the darkness together as one. As Matt Chandler, a pastor in Texas, he's a, the president of one of the organizations that we're part of, Acts 29. Acts 29 plants churches all around the world. Matt Chandler said this, 
If you have a healthy local church made up of people who love Jesus Christ and know his word, darkness gets pushed back in 1,000 different directions. It's 1,000 little lights in the darkness that make up the heat in the gospel. So wherever you find yourself, whatever context, whether you're a single mother, whether you're in the marketplace, whether you work for the government, whatever your case may be, together, as light has been shone into our hearts and we've seen the light of the gospel, we're pushing back the darkness. And we know that Christ has the ultimate victory so we can have a true peace that surpasses understanding. And because God is one, we must be united and sometimes it means apologizing and saying sorry, repenting to the Father, asking for forgiveness from those we've hurt, bridling our tongues, keeping a check on our minds that we would be united and we would push darkness back in a thousand times a billion different directions. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, it is deeply humbling to talk about unity in the church when I can see in my own heart division. Would you give me clarity that I could give others the benefit of the doubt? Would you help us to be united? And would you help each of us discover our gifts and where we play a role in the body that we would build up the church and that we would do it together and it wouldn't be just the task of the elders or the leaders, but together as one body, we would push back the darkness and we would rejoice in the fact that it is finished and the victory is won and we will be with you, united together for the gospel. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.